for team has prepared for you, for me too. Is our next speaker. Oh. Our next speaker is uh, Mr. Michael V. Spindel Watson. He is an ABE or about dissertation at George Mason in economics. He is very much on a man of contradiction because he likes Austrian economics, ethically speaking, from how Friedrich von Hayek was decent. Ludwig von Mises was a, an inveterate atheist who hated Judaism and sneered at Christianity, surprised at how lively and uh, vivacious and robust the Catholic, especially, and evangelical uh, debates were. At the same time, Mr. Schindler Watson is a contradiction because he loves Catholic social. So maybe next time we'll invite Michael Novak, who used to teach here at IWP, to, um, uh, well, to excite Mr. Schindler Watson since we cannot no longer invite uh, Friedrich von Hayek. He's dead. <laughs> and he wasn't directly associated with us because he used to stay quite frequently at Mr. Bentley's house. You may be wondering about Bentley Hall next door. That's Mr. Bentley from Nevada. And they were, he was friends with a good friend of Friedrich von Hayek. Mr. Schwinder Watson has regularly uh, participated in various seminars on Austrian libertarian thought. He has published in uh, the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. And he has also spoken here. This is his second time. Uh, he's a historian. When I met him for the first time, he thought he knew everything. Now, I don't know, 15 years later, he's become much more humble. So he's reached the point that he knows that he knows nothing which is a great improvement, and I would like to welcome him to tell us all about Paradisus Judeorum in uh, royal and or private cities of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Or was it? <laughs> yeah, so I remember actually. Uh, in seventh grade, I told Professor Hodakiewicz I knew everything about Yusuf Pusutski. Um, I found out when I found out he was a Polish historian. Now you do, really. Yeah, I, I found out I know nothing. But um, <laughs> so several years ago, I presented on the Paradisius Eudorum, the Paradise of the Jews in the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. There, I, I took the data that I compiled under Professor Markoyama and looked at how Eastern Europe was different than Western Europe in terms of persecution and expulsions. And we also looked at how weather, bad weather, low temperature, which would create a negative income shock. When people are poor, they tend to attack their neighbors. Or there is a, perhaps a greater possibility that they would attack their neighbors or expropriate them. We found that that correlation, which held in Western Europe, didn't hold in, in Eastern Europe, in the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth has a different institutional framework. And this talk, well, in my research, I discovered that a lot of historians talked about royal cities and private cities and the differences there. And so I began researching, and there, there's a debate, there's a difference between 
older Jewish historians and newer Polish, or older Polish Jewish historians and newer Polish Jewish historians. And I quote Antoni Polanski from the Jews in Poland and Russia, quote, contrary to the view of older Jewish historians, most notably Simon Dubnov, which characterized the owners of the towns as eccentric and arbitrary. The town owner of Opatov was quite rational in his behavior, seeking what was best for the town. He was also on occasion, you know, also on occasion supported the Jewish inhabitants. Meyer Bauerban, this is a historian before World War II, wrote, each caprice or ill humor of the town owner could result in the worst unhappiness for the Jewish individual or even the whole community. Bernard Weinrib wrote in The Jews of Poland. This is probably, I think, one of the best books on the topic in the English language. I highly advocate anyone to read it. Rossmann's uh, case studies are excellent, too. The Lord's Jews, which I have to get out of my backpack later. Um, <laughs> um, many, so, quote, many Jewish historians accepting the general trend of Polish historiography since the 19th century try to emphasize, usually out of proportion, the arbitrariness of some landlords in their handling of Jews, as if to outweigh any favorable view of the nobility, or as though they were ideologically opposed to the concept of nobility in general. And here he's talking about the anti-noble bias in the positive, positivist historians of, the, um, of um, the late 19th century. Uh, but one cannot do otherwise than admit that in the private cities and towns, the legal situation of Jews was better than in royal cities. You know what, this is the setup I have here. Let me change it really quick. There should be a, um, should be a way of the presenter's view. I need the presenter's view. See, better is the enemy of good. Yeah. It's, it's, the problem is I have some, several notes here in my... Um, nope. You know what happens in our, in our seminars? I always ask you to run this. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is it not showing me the presenter's view? Let's see if that works. I'm clicking presenter's view. It's not giving me presenter's view. You know that old Yankee proverb, the thing broke, don't fix it. The thing broke, don't fix it, right. Um, great. Um, I apologize for this. Um, Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why it's showing up there. I'm pressing the button for it to show up, but it's not showing up. Oh, it's disconnected. Is there anyone, anyone out there who can help me with this, or? Help <laughs> me, help me, but I'll find body. <laughs> uh. Okay, so I got that back, but how do I, well, it's not giving me, it's this presenter's view is clicked, but it's not actually giving me presenter's view, which means I can't see my notes. Hold up, hold up, let's see what happens. Oh, I got it, okay. Presenter's view, that means I see what the next slide is and all that kind of stuff. Okay, well, let me continue. So. When I was 
reading these different histories of the Poles, uh, or the Pol of Jews in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, I found a lot of detailed anecdotal accounts, which are great case studies. You need lots of case studies. However, as an economist, sometimes we like to see aggregate statistics. We like to be able to compare using stats and do some type of statistical analysis. So I went about and used the data we had and did that. And um, thus, the question to determine is, where did Jews have it better off? Do they have it better off in the private cities or the noble cities, uh, according to the statistics I, I, uh, I, uh, I put together? Of better off means they lived in peace without persecution or expulsion. Persecutions are violence, uh, pogroms, uh, uh, riots, and, and the like. Expulsions are when uh, a Jewish community is thrown out of a, a, a town or city. Now, with ex expulsions usually occurred, um, well, often in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, sometimes it, uh, an expulsion could be classified from something called the non-tolerandus udeis, which is where the king granted a privilege to one of the towns or cities to exclude Jews from settling within the city. Often, this, there were actually no Jews within the city. It was given often to ecclesiastical towns, that is a town that is uh, owned by the clergy or the church, and so it wasn't really an expulsion because there were no Jews there. What also often happened in these um, ecclesiastical towns was you would have, they, the Jews would live in the, in the suburbs where that was outside of the jurisdiction of the, the city. So the question I'm, here, I'm asking is whether private towns experience less persecution expulsions than royal towns. But before going to the statistics and all that, let's, get, let's look at the institutional historical framework that was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the religious freedom of that country. So what were differences between Poland, Lithuania, and the rest? Well, Poland, Lithuania was a multi-religious, multi-linguistic, multi-ethnic monarchy that developed into a republic of nobles. The king took the Jews under the personal protection, and many Jews became useful to the king of Poland as minters, financiers, and managers of royal properties. And Religious pluralism and freedom was a law, and many different ethnic and religious groups had privileges and protections. But remember, religious pluralism, freedom today is very different than it was back then. Then it was categorized under the estates. That means you had the peasants, you had the nobility, you had the clergy, the church. Um, you had Armenians who, uh, and Tatars who are Muslims. You had Muslims in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. You had Presbyterian Scots. You had the Socinians, which brought back the Aryan heresy of the early church. Uh, the nobility can more or less choose whatever religion they wanted. The Jews uh, were a state, in a state unto themselves uh, with their own privileges. So today we, we're all, we can switch religions and do whatever we want nowadays. Back then, if you switched to becoming a Jew, that would be a problem. If you were a Jew switching to becoming uh, a Catholic, you were ennobled. And there were some situations where there was, Jews were ennobled which is very strange, right? That didn't happen in Western Europe, but in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, there are examples, very few, but there are examples where a Jew would become a noble. And then there was a debate. Is this Jewish nobleman, should he be, tr should he be um, held accountable in a noble court or in a Jewish court? And of course, there were ecclesiastical courts, there were royal courts, there were, uh, co uh, th this is the Middle Ages and the early modern period. There is radical decentralization compared to what we have today. So. 
It all began in 1264 when Prince Boleslaw, the pious of Great Poland and Kalish, gave the Jews a charter, the Statue of Kalish, putting them under his jurisdiction out of any city, ecclesiastical, or other court. Of course, before 1264, you do have Karaite Jews in the Ukraine, in Kiev, and in Lvov. Uh, however, 1264 is the beginning of the emigration of Ashkenazi Jewry into the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, or uh, Poland. Um, this charter became the tradition of the Commonwealth. It uh, was confirmed by King Kazimierz the Great in 1364 and 1367, King Władysław Jagiel in 1387 in Lithuania in 1388 and 89, and other monarchs in 1453, 1539, and 17, 1765. And this was the established tradition until the late 18th century. Even when the nobility, ha who had their own private courts, had their own lord courts within, within those private towns, they followed that tradition that was established. So the Statue of College gave um, established uh, a Jew's judge, as the Jews had their own court system, which enforced Jewish law. Jurisdiction included cases of Jew versus non-Jew. Jewish and Christian witnesses were required if a Christian took a Jew to court. Jewish defendants were tried according to Jewish law by the Jews' judge. A Christian who murdered a Jew suffered greater punishment, the established punishments as well as uh, confiscation of his property. And a Christian who wounded a Jew had to pay a fine to the prince or king in addition to damages uh, to the victim. Now, of course, in the this, in this time period, this, this is a tradition, and it becomes interpretive. There's a variety of interpretations throughout Poland and, and throughout Lithuania. So, and often, local localities would interpret these laws according to their situation or according to whatever interest groups were there. Um, Statue of College established the inviolability of person and property, freedom to travel, could not discriminate against Jews, that is, mean charge higher tolls to Jews, although there are examples of this. And the, the landlords, when so so, when um, Jews were working for the landlords, carrying their grain to Gdansk, uh, sometimes there would be complaints that the, that the Jews would have that were being, um, uh, were, were have to pay tolls, and the, the landlord would intervene upon their behalf. Uh, desecration of Jewish synagogues and cemeteries was punishable. Protection of Jewish uh, funeral processions, ritual slaughter, and it disallowed non-Jews from collecting debts from Jews on the Sabbath. It also prohibited the charge of the blood libel, uh, cited the papal bull of Pope Innocent IV in 1247. However, you know, Pope Innocent's uh, papal bull was not listened all throughout Europe, and neither was this, uh, the, pro the prohibition of the charge of the blood libel. However, the king would show up once in a while, lop some heads off for folks um, um, persecuting Jews, or he'd fine them, uh, throw them in jail, or, or free the Jew from the, uh, from the, from, you know, if the Jew had been thrown in jail and was under suspicion of the blood libel charge. Jews were freemen attached to the, to the treasury, which is an analogous to the Jews of Western Europe. So when, they, when the Jews come to Poland, they um, try to institute some of the privileges they had in Western Europe. However, in 1236, Jews start becoming called chamber serfs, servi camarade. Western theologians describe it as servitus iudeorum, serfdom of Jewry. This never occurs in Poland. Poles are never described as chamber serfs. Um, what, what this meant, chamber serfs and the serfdom of Jewry, is that in the West, Jews are treated as the property of the king or the prince who may expel, rob, plunder, pawn, or cancel debts owed, to the, owed by him. And when Jews were expelled from those towns, you would see the prince would all of a sudden say, I owe no more debts because I expelled the population I owed the debt to. Uh, 
Kings Władysław Jagiełło, Kazimierz IV, and Alexander explained their protection and toleration of the Jews was in accord to with God's law, not because Jews were the king's property. This tradition of religious freedom is, as you'll later see when I go through some of the some of the anecdotes um, on the private towns, was was alive in the nobility of the Commonwealth, and they uh, would when when, discuss, when discussing about the Jews would talk about how. Uh, religious freedom was, was a, a tradition of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So the official status, legal status of Jews was that of freemen like knights and gentry or burghers. Um, they, could, they, they had the right to take an oath on a Torah. Uh, I've discussed the, the decentralization of the Middle Ages. Jews were also allowed to um, keep and bear firearms. And what does the right to keep and bear firearms mean? traditionally, historically. It means that you're not a serf or a slave. This goes back to ancient Greece, where if you had the right to keep in arms, you were a citizen or a freeman. Um, the king intervened to protect the Jews when persecuted. Uh, at, at times, there, there were times when folks got away with, say, persecution of the Jews, but this was uh, often the exception and not always the rule. And, but remember, we're talking about variation at the local level, which in Krakow was very different than Poznań, which was very different than Lwów. In Lwów, uh, persecution, persecution of the Jews was rather low. In Krakow, there was a lot of strife. A lot of that strife was due to competition between the guilds, who are, can only be Christians, and, and the Jews who cannot be part of the guild, which is, uh, I would argue, is analogous to union and non-union labor, if you have union labor, they're often in competition with non-union labor. The union is either going to try bringing in that labor within the union or they're going to try excluding them from the, the labor market. Jews cannot become part of the guild and thus uh, the guild who ran, often ran the cities, tried excluding them from, the, uh, from their jurisdiction within the city. The king would also grant non-tolerandos judeus on occasion to some towns, usually ecclesiastical towns. The church. So, for a variety of economic, political, and religious reasons, the synods of the church wanted to completely segregate um, Jews and Christians. And one of the reasons they gave was that Jews, or that Poland was a young Christian nation, and that a foreign religion such as Judaism would perhaps corrupt this young Christian nation. Of uh, their synods were ignored mostly, or practically were practically ignored. Uh, they was against the laws of the king. The clergy themselves didn't follow them. Uh, if you look at the monasteries, if you look at the, uh, the ecclesiastical towns, they willingly and often had good relations with the Jews and traded with them. Uh, of course, Jews had good relations with the king. They worked for the king and they were able to lobby and have the king protect them from persecution. The statue of college established the Council of the Four Lands. Um, and and, and if, if some of you may recall this from several years ago, it, there, there is a little bit of overlap, which once we get to the next slide, it's going to be royal versus private. The Statue of Kalish also granted the Jews the Council of the Four Lands, which is an autonomous organization that paid taxes to the monarch and often excluded Jews from paying taxes at, in, the, in the royal towns and cities. And so this, this creates a lot of conflict. Why? Because imagine you have part of your town that doesn't pay taxes to the local government, while another portion does. Jealousy animosity breeds. And, and there, was, there were several towns where the Jews agreed to pay the local taxes and after that you have no persecutions. And so it seems like that animosity perhaps 
what Swan, the Christians probably saw as a double standard affected, you know, it, it affected the, the, the public order of the community. Um, whereas in the private towns, Jews paid taxes uh, like the Christians uh, t to the landlord. A, the Council of the Four Lands was a judicial, political, religious, and charitable institution. It established, a, it had, they had their own courts, the Kehila and the Kehilot, and they, um, they were a charitable institution. They established a social safety net, and so when there was a persecution, when there was an expulsion, when, the, when there was the Khmelnytsky insurrection uh, in the Ukraine, the Jews would organize to help their fellow Jews through the Council of the Four Lands. In noble towns, the Kehila worked often very closely with the noble owner toward uh, the common, toward what I would argue is the common good. So royal versus private. Before 1539, if you are a Jew living in a private town, you can appeal any type of judgments made by the Kehila, the, uh, the, uh, the Jewish court, to the royal court. In 1539, the king transferred jurisdiction of the Jews living to private towns to the nobles. So now, rather than appealing to, uh, as a Jew, instead of appealing to the, no, uh, the royal court, you would ap appeal to the landlord's court, which was the same as the other folks who lived, as the Christians who lived in the, in the private town. So now Jews and non-Jews both appeal to, land, to, the, to, the, to the noblemen. There are two sorts of Jews legally, then private Jews and royal Jews. The king was overlord, however, he was usually, frankly, just ignored unless something egregious occurred. One example was when the general or the hetman of the Russian or Muscovite military switched sides. He came to the Polish side or the Polish-Lithuanian side and the king gave him a, gifted him a private town or a royal town that became his own. First thing he did is he put all the Jews in prison. Um, the, the Jews in the area you know, freaked out about this and got, got Queen Bonasforza to show up and say, well, you know, in Poland we do things, or Lithuania, we do things a little differently. We, uh, the Jews have rights. And so he released all his Jews that he had put into the prison, and then he started interacting them like any other Polish nobleman. He completely he assimilated to the traditions and the culture and expectations of a nobleman in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, Private towns blossomed in the 16th and 18th century, and Jews moved in mass, especially to the Ukraine. Uh, Jews often were employed by the magnates and owners of towns collecting taxes and rents and managing estates. And so they were able to, whether it be a view of lobbying or of communicating the problems or solutions toward that, that, that particular private town. Though Jews were legally protected by the king, and the king often had a financial incentive to protect the Jews, the relationship between Jews and noblemen became stronger due to proximity and scarcity. If you need to get the king to come and intervene, you know, the king has a lot of things going on. He's, he's got many rural towns. He's, uh, he's off far away, either in Krakow and Warsaw. Uh, he has to run some foreign policy. He has to deal with the same in the Senate. Uh, whereas often the landlord, the landlords would, the noblemen who owned these towns would travel throughout the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth visiting all their, their estates. And so often you would, he'd be in your town and you could go talk to him or you could talk to his manager. Uh, often the manager was a Jew himself, so if there was a problem, you could deal with it quite quickly. Uh, the owners of towns also wanted immigration to increase, right? So um, because more residents means more taxes. 
Whereas in the royal towns, if Jews immigrate there, they don't pay taxes. So the, that royal town, the people who run it, the guild, aren't very interested in Jewish, re Jewish residents immigrating there, because that, at least for financial reasons. Where in the private towns, the, the noblemen would purposely create policies that would encourage Jewish immigration into their town. So they would say, you move here, no taxes for 10 years. Uh, I, I think some countries do that with foreign corporations nowadays, where they offer those type of tax incentives. Uh, also, often the Christian guilds would also, in their attempt to regulate the market in a monopolistic manner, would attempt to exclude Jews, even though it was sometimes against the laws of the king. So when it comes to the privileges throughout the Commonwealth that were given to Jews, whether they be in royal or private towns, in royal towns, they were more uniform. In, in, in uh, private towns, they were much more tailored to the locality, to what the landlord thought was best, and there was more variation in experimentation. Uh, perhaps entrepreneurship would be the word. Each noble town, while following the tradition established by the Polish monarchy, gave privileges to each Jewish community independently. Some, and there was some variety, usually more tailored to local customs. Often Jews were also the co-founders of these towns. So with royal towns, you, um, often the Jews were the Im immigrated into these towns were in the, in the, and they were not the co-founders, they were not the founding fathers. Where in the private towns, they were the co-founders along with the Christian burghers or the Christians in the area and the landlord. Uh, they sometimes financed these. So they were part of that community from the, its get-go. So what did this mean? Um, it meant, in, in terms of immigration, half of the Jews in the, in the world lived in, the Pol in Poland, Lithuania, and Ruthenia in the 18th century. They, from their free choices, it can be determined that Poland was the paradisus Iodeorum. Three quarters of Polish Jewry lived in private towns and villages. Two thirds of Polish Jewry lived in private towns. Thus, one quarter of the Jews in the world lived in private towns in the Commonwealth. I think that's a big um, factor right there, or, or, or that, that's, the, that's, that's the evidence. Would Jews move in mass to private towns and villages if noblemen were eccentric and arbitrary in their rule, as Dubnov claims? Um, another way of putting this is, if Jews, like other men with families, career, careers, and property, prefer peace, security, and prosperity to violence and poverty, then we can determine from the choices that Jews freely made that the noblemen's towns and cities provided better living conditions and opportunities than royal towns and cities. And I think it's fair to say that most people like or prefer security and prosperity and peace to violence and poverty. And so from their free choices, and Jews were freemen, they could immigrate anywhere within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. They en masse chose the private towns of the nobility. And so here's a nice map to change it from the words. Um, this is 1764. Uh, the darker colors, that is a dark red, is where Jews, the, the constant, the density of the Jewish population. And you'll see where do Jews mostly live. That's south, southern Poland, western Ukraine. Uh, and that's where the that's where majority of the, um, of the, maybe not the majority, but that's where there was many private towns being set up in the um, 16th to 18th century. Wolf will be, yeah, it's going to be, you know what? I can't actually read it, but it's somewhere around here. Further out. You see Krakow? I can't see anything. Right here. Oh, jeez. Krakow is here. 
So this is right here. The roof is right there? Oh, yeah. So it's in the darkest. Yes, yeah. yeah. So why did Jews move to private uh, towns? Well, landlords wish to develop and populate their estates. Tax breaks and legal incentives um, were created to, to promote new immigration. Quicker and, often and quicker and often direct contact with the landlord when problems arise uh, allowed for a lot of the problems to be qu quickly solved rather than the expensive proposition of lobbying the king. And the profit motive is directly linked to residency, which was not so in most royal towns. Jews were often better included in municipal government, or more likely, that the or another way of saying it is that Kahila co-ruled with the Christians. Um, one may think of what, what, one may think of um, Jews in a private town were not two towns living in one town. It was one town with two different boroughs, ruling co-ruling together. So now that we've gone through the, the institutional framework, the, the history, uh, let's go look at some examples. The Shinyavsky Chartorsky magnates referred to their Jewish residents as townsmen, Mishanin, or citizen obivatel, the same terms they used for their Christian residents. They obviously made the distinctions legally between Jews and Christians. However, when they looked at those Jewish residents and Christian residents, they both they saw them as the townsmen and the citizens of their, of their towns. They were not some lower class citizen. Obligations and rights were similar between Jews um, and Christians in Zhejiang, Mianzibuz, and Shinyava. If you give me one second, I will. I'd actually like to read some of them out to you because it's. And when I'm reading these out, think about the differences and the similarities. All property owners, whether Jew or Christian, or renters, had to pay the property tax on their homes or stores. For example, in Shinyava, a Christian border paid 12 groschen, a Jew paid one and a half swatsa. The, the Jews paid a little bit higher of a tax. In Mianzebuz, a Christian paid the flat, a flat two and a half swatsa for his home regardless of size. Jews who owned the larger homes paid in proportion to size two swatsa to eight swatsa. All householders had to pay a fee for the right to fish in the magnate's pond, and those who owned livestock paid for pasture rights in the magnate's meadow. All householders were required to participate personally in maintenance work on town walls, bridges, roads, and so forth. All households had to contribute some time and equipment to projects such as hay cutting and baling, grain harvesting, and transporting the magnates, fish, honey, and grain. Jews usually had the option of hiring a substitute. All householders had to maintain firearms and participate in the defense of the town. All householders were responsible for fire prevention to be split between the Kahila and the Christians. Um, together. Christian householders had to pay a honey tax. That's the one tax that Christians pay that Jews don't. And I couldn't figure out why this honey tax was a, do, do you know anything about this honey tax? I couldn't figure out where it came from. There probably was some kind of uh, religious prohibition about, uh, uh, this is my wild guess, Okay. Uh, religious prohibition against honey, that's number one. Number two, beehives have to be kept outside of city limits for obvious reasons. So if uh, the Jewish population lived inside, you wouldn't expect them to have to pay that tax, no? Okay. Yeah. Um, another important thing is uh, both, so 
Frequently, Miller's that's shoemakers. Frequently, Miller's shoemakers, tailors, furriers, and weavers were required to provide the magnet with specified amount of free material labor. Note, there's no distinction between Christian Millers and shoemakers and Jews. Often in the royal towns, the uh, royal town would say a Christian cannot or a Jew cannot be a, a, a shoemaker or it can't be a tailor or it was heavily restricted. Where in these towns, there is no distinction that was made. A Jew or a Christian could pursue whatever life they saw fit. And Jews were often warned to serve good quality liquor and to pay the required liquor tax. Uh, that was probably because Jews, the, so the nobility had the um, monopolistic right to produce liquor and they would rent that. Yeah, the Odenazia, and they would rent that often to Jews at taverns uh, to produce liquor. Farm it out. What? The English word is farm out. Farm out. Not rent. Rent, farm out. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah right, right. Not farming. Okay. So at the founding of Oleszczyce by nobleman Hieronim Szynjawski, Hieronim wrote, the Polish crown flourishes that it is composed of people of diverse estates, particularly in regards to their religious allegiance, on the principle that no authority shall exercise power over faith, honor, and conscience. We wish, therefore, to secure a peaceful life, especially to those persons who have suffered persecution, not because of any crimes or evil deeds, but for, their, but for other reasons, so that they may enjoy the liberties of the laws enacted by us. It kind of sounds a little bit like the um, American founding uh, in religious liberty. Now, one thing that's important in this quote, excuse me, um, this is uh, this 17th century. And this is from, it's either from this book, The Lord's Jews by Rosman, or it's um, the, uh, the other one that's about Opatov. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's either that one or this one. I don't remember which one. So in this quote, you'll see the Polish. Now, the, the nobleman doesn't have to um, necessarily, he, you know, it's its own jurisdiction. But he invokes the Polish crown. That is, he's following the tradition established in 1264 by Bolesław the Pious. Um, and, he, and, and so the, that tradition is encapsulated in the towns, the private towns of the Commonwealth. So uh, Pavo. So this one is from Opatov. Th so the last quote is from um, Rosman. This quote is from uh, Hundert. Pavel Karol Sanguszko, owner of Opatov, Prince. Prince. Prince, sorry. Closer to the, Ru to the Rurik family than the Romanovs. It's not a joke. It's a real deal. Prince Pavel Karol Sanguszko, <laughs> <laughs> owner of Opatov, declared the Jews declared to the Jews there, because in a well-ordered state the whole population depends on the elders of the Kehila, while the elders, elders are in their turn elected by the commonality. Therefore we undertake that the elders of this said synagogue of Apatush should be freely elected every year according to the Jewish laws and customs without any, any interference from the lordly power. End of quote. Um, institutional religious freedom, that the institutions that Jews had are free from the meddling of any higher authority. Of course, you know, the world isn't perfect, um, but, and the, the, the private lord would sometimes interfere, though sometimes the private lord would interfere, often for the benefit of the community, when he believed that the public order and peace were not being pursued by the Kehila. Um, and remember, the, these owners are interested in profit and long-term profit, and so public order and peace result in long-term profit. So, now, You've had some anecdotes, you've had some 
reflection on the history and, and the institutional framework of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in regard to Jews. Let's go into some stats and regressions. Um, so the type of regression I did was a standard binary logistic regression using dichotomous data. That means an expulsion is a one and, a no, and no expulsion is a zero, or a persecution is a one and a no persecution is a zero. My sample size is 181 cities and towns and villages with uh, Jewish communities. I have about another 30 to add to that. Um, it's on a different Excel spreadsheet. I just haven't had time to incorporate it. One set of regressions uses data from all years and another excludes 1640 to 1660. And 1640 and 1660, that's the time of the Khmelnytsky insurrection until the end of this, the, the deluge, Potop. Um, and this is a time of you know, the Ruthenian peasants with the Cossacks doing an upper, uprising in, the, in uh, Ukraine that even goes up to the areas of Belarus and parts of uh, uh, southeast Poland. The, uh, the Swedes come, the Muscovites come. It's a time of guerrilla warfare, of uh, massive destruction. And if you include the, those as persecutions, you're including really uh, wartime democide, right, or genocide. Um, you're, it's a different. You know, the, the norms of the Commonwealth are not exactly working at the moment. It's a time of chaos. My variables, my independent variables are private city versus royal city. My dependent variables are persecution and or expulsions. My data sources. Uh, the first one is, you can find it online, it's very handy for any scholars out there. The Słownik Historyczno-Geograficzny-Ziem-Polski-Średniowieczu the geographic the historical geographical encyclopedia of Polish lands in the Middle Ages. The second one, the geographic encyclopedia of the Polish kingdom and other Slavic countries is published between 1880 to 1890. I'm hoping that there's some new geographic encyclopedias that come out on this because that's the best one I could find. And it's written before World War I, which is a Polish that I have difficult understanding. So I actually, when I was reading this, I asked my girlfriend who's fluent in Polish to come over. I'm like, what does this mean? She said, I don't know. And then my mother who's sitting in the crowd. I asked her, mom, what does this mean? And she said, I don't know. And my mom did an MD in Poland, so she's a native, native speaker. Um, and so I'm sitting down. We're going through all the definitions in the different dictionaries. And then you know the definition of the, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the medieval Polish. And finally, I started figuring out, OK, what, what, what this is all meaning. I also use Encyclopedia Judaica, and when those fails, I failed, I would often just use books like this. A lot of good information in here. And if I really couldn't find information on the Jewish community, I would actually visit the city website, which usually didn't have much info on there, but sometimes it was very detailed, listing all the different owners and uh, even some um, the relations with the Jewish community. So. Out of those 181 towns and villages and cities I have, seven were ecclesiastical, duhove. Um, 86 were private, 88 were royal. So about a 50-50 split. When we look at some of all persecutions and expulsions, uh, we have 13 in private communities, where I'm excluding 1640 to 1660, because if you include 1640 to 1660, it's uh, private towns that are usually much smaller than the royal towns. Uh, everyone leaves them, or there's a lot of uh, bloodshed that takes place in them. So in times of peace, uh, the private towns experience 13 expulsions or persecutions. The royal towns and cities experience 61. And the ecclesiastical experience two. However, those two may, th those were expulsions from what I remember. And they were probably 
more related to the town being granted a, the privilege of Don Tarandes Judeis, which, but there weren't any Jews in that town yet, so um, it's a little different. The ecclesiastical town is not in my regression because there's so many, there's so few ecclesiastical towns in my data set that it would, it wouldn't result in any um, results. Oh, um, so my data looks between 1300 and 1750. So, um, and this is not complete, this is a work in progress, but this is what I have so far. I still have another 30 towns and cities to include in this data, but I think from the descriptive stats, it looks like private towns uh, are much more peaceful and much more conducive to Jewish life. So when I ran my regressions, um, uh, the, the first one, my dependent variable, is expulsions. I had one statistically significant result in this whole process, but um, it, in, every, in every regression, it showed that it was a less likely chance that in private towns there would be an expulsion or persecution. Um, and it was much more likely that in a royal town you would experience a persecution or expulsion. So in here, again, I did not include 1648 to 1660 because it, it, it uh, spews out gibberish. Um, so here, and then the royal town for an expulsion, 1.7 times more likely. In, in a private town, 87% less likely. For persecutions, a royal town, and this is my statistically significant result, a royal town, 2.2 um, times more likely, a private town, 30% less likely that a persecution would occur. Now when I bring together persecutions and expulsions into the same dependent variable, um, with all years, you'll see that still the private towns less likely, that's 15% less likely, uh, the, royal the royal two times more likely. When you get out, when you take out 1648 to 1660, the royal stays practically the same because royal towns didn't suffer as much as the private towns in, during the, um, between 1648 and 1660. Uh, the private towns suffered the most, and so when you take out those persecutions of suffering, the bloodshed that took place, um, you'll see that there's a 60% less likely chance that persecutions or expulsions would happen in a private town. And then, this was more for fun, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I need to look at population as a variable, and so when I took out the population centers, I found that there is a decrease in the likelihood that royal cities would experience, um, would experience a persecution or expulsion. So here we have, in royal towns, it's twice more likely to have a persecution or expulsion in a royal town, where now it's 1.16 times. Um, and all the major, center, um, major population centers were royal cities. So conclusion and future work, uh, I'm expanding my my database as it goes. Uh, my tentative conclusion is that private cities best capture the tradition of the, par uh, the, the tradition that Boleslav Pius started, um, by the, and the paradise of the Jews was best practiced in private cities relative to royal cities. Um, I, I talked about my population variable, and then what I was also thinking about doing is looking at towns and cities and the Protestants and the different um, non-Catholics who live in those towns and cities and seeing perhaps there's some type of 
correlation between towns that had Protestants and Jews and Catholics, maybe experiencing less persecution versus um, towns that are more homogenous. Of course, the, I imagine that private towns will also work better for the Protestants because so much of the nobility, a third of the nobility went Protestant at one point, and so the Rajivu family, the Hodakevich family, were Calvinists at one point, and they sponsored them. Um, here's a map. What's going on here? There we go. A map of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and that's the end of my uh, discussion. I will now open it up for Hodakevich to pontificate on my... <laughs> my presentation. Oh, go oh, great. First of all, this is a tour de force brilliant. I really am delighted that we are rehabilitating feudalism. <laughs> yes, indeed, the great lords were rational. They liked to make money, too. They were just not capitalists. They were not banksters. Crony capitalists. also had a paternalistic streak in them, which carries on until, until this very day. When the SS Sturmbanfier Danneke asked the, the king of uh, Bulgaria, who, by the way, in Bulgaria goes by the name of Boris Zaksa Koburgotsky, his real name is von Zaksa Koburgota, to deport Jews to be gassed in Auschwitz, the king said, by the way, no, because they're all my children. Basically, that's how feudals approach the world. Everybody is a child. There is a more than a whiff of paternalism, which modern people hate. Not egalitarianism, but hierarchy. Uh, I have a couple of, a few comments. Uh, first of all, as the Commonwealth developed its institutions, the Jewish community was one of a number of separate communities that enjoyed autonomy. The Council of Four Lands was one thing which ran Jewish affairs. Jews even established their own taxes. But uh, there were other communities which enjoyed the same sort of a, an autonomous existence and institution. And the context is important. So Scots, who were Presbyterians, had their own separate uh, institution. And in every town where there were Scots, they enjoyed autonomy and similar arrangements to the, Jew to the Jewish community. So did the Tatars, who were Muslim. And so did the Armenians, who were of the Armenian rights, but there were also divisions within the Armenian confession. So uh, those divisions reflected various uh, uh, well, peculiarities within the community. Now, of course, within the Jewish community, uh, you, for the most part, you could talk about rabbinical Judaism, but there showed up from time to time uh, various orientations which uh, the mainstream Jewish community fiercely persecuted uh, elsewhere. For instance, the Karaim, Karaites, mm -hmm. Almoglas Jews, who were, um, who were set upon and attacked by mainstream rabbinical Jews, say, in Spain. 
They were denounced by the mainstream Jewish community, the Karaim, the Karaim were, both uh, to the Muslims in Spain and to the Christians. They were pursued and hounded down, not to the Commonwealth. If you were of, uh, if you were a Hasidim in the Commonwealth, that was all right. This is where true pluralism applied, mm -hmm. even in the Jewish community, which tended to be rather <coughs> well thus you put together and um, uh, uh, well put together and hermetic in a way. Uh, another remark about the Jewish community is the Jewish nobility, or rather its lack. Some said, well, you know, the Tatars had nobility. Muslims with coats of arms, yes, so did the Scots once the parliament agreed to recognize your foreign nobility. There was a special mm -hmm. act of parliament mm -hmm. which, en uh, which entailed some jumping through hoops. It was possible. Scots who uh, became Polish patriots uh, naturally also uh, sometimes were awarded nobility. What about the Jewish community? Well, there were a few Jews who kept their Judaism, and they were noble, for instance. Uh, Ephraimovich, yeah, who yeah, was yeah. The, the, basically the crown chancellor of the exchequer, so the guy in charge of treasury under Cassini the Great. He was, his confession was Judaism, uh, but he was a Polish nobleman. I think his coat of arms was Leliva, if I recall correctly. In any event, why so few? Well, that's because by the constitution of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, if a Jew converted to a Roman Catholicism, he was automatically ennobled. So there's an encyclopedia of Polish nobility of Jewish origin. Also, if you look at old uh, early, um, books from uh, uh, the Grand Duchy, you'll see uh, about 5 to 10 percent, depending on the county, of people who are listed in those books with their coats of arms, but it says Znaufitu, of the Naufites, you know, the old nobility has elaborate trees with many generations, and here is a dude and his two sons. Yeah. <laughs> and it says Znaufitu, and, uh, and, um, and uh, usually a footnote, the constitution of whatever Statutilitas, yeah, the constitution of whatever, uh, uh, whatever paragraph. Uh, so, uh, in other words, if you were Jewish and uh, you wanted to become a part of the elite that voted not just within the Jewish community but nationwide, the road was open, but the price was conversion. Uh, the Tatars didn't have to do it, meaning they stayed Muslim. <coughs> of course, after a couple hundreds of years, you have people like uh, Mustafa, who are today called Muszynski. <laughs> they don't even know about it, but that's okay. How it was under communism, everybody forgot everything. Most people don't even know their coats of arms of horror. In any event, uh, as far as royal towns and arrangements, between Christians and Jews, uh, there was a difference between, of course, the treatment of uh, each autonomous group. There was, in terms of ethnicity, because 
say, if you settle based on a Marburg law, as a German settler from Westphalia, mm -hmm. you would mm -hmm. be treated differently mm -hmm. if an arrangement uh, which uh, allowed you to arrive and live in, uh, say, the royal crown lands, and you were from Saxony because of some other arrangement. There was a lot of diversity and a lot of uh, legal, legal mm -hmm. considerations depending upon your confession, your ethnicity, <coughs> and your legal status. Not only as a free man, as you said. Uh, by the way, what was egregiously missing was royal peasants who enjoyed a different status, and free farmers who also could bear arms. Mm -hmm. For instance, in Kurpia, in the Kurpia region up uh, north toward Pomerania, uh, this was a famous spot for archers and later sharpshooters. And they still do that, by the way. So they've carried on the tradition for a long time. They were also allowed weapons, which made them free. And they were mm -hmm. not nobility, mm -hmm. not to be confused with uh, petty nobility. Uh, mm -hmm. Petty nobility meant you served, you protected the nation, you were a nobleman. That meant you had 40 acres and a mule, basically. They were rather poor. But you served, you fought, that's all that was necessary. It, as I said, it's extremely delightful to talk about it because it's so deeply buried in history that hardly anybody knows or, or remembers anything, including historians who tend to follow trends and fashions. I'm glad you don't. You're res resurrecting. Uh, you're like an archaeologist in, in this endeavor. Uh, I wanted to uh, mention a few things about royal towns and uh, their inhabitants. So there was not only differentiation based on uh, a guild, social status and ethnic background and confessional uh, origin, uh, there was also a legal differentiation between, uh, between various groups. Most of the time in the municipal authorities enjoyed the right to persecute people who transgressed in towns. But if you were a Scot, a Jew, an Armenian, or a Tatar, they couldn't which was a bone of contention. Mm -hmm. And it oftentimes could lead to altercations, even sometimes riots in towns. So the way the king fixed things was there was a royal starosta Grotsky, mm -hmm. county supervisor. And he took care of, well, quarrels between various groups, not only Jews, but also Jews and Christians. He was supposed to be impartial. Sometimes to prevent rioting, he was not exactly impartial uh, toward a group that, uh, uh, that constituted an absolute minority. I am also glad, uh, uh, I am also glad you mentioned Krakow and case studies again. Krakow, the royal capital in medieval Poland after Gniezna and Poznań and Płock. Kłodz was Poland's capital for about 40 years or so. Uh, yes. <laughs> under, under Bolesław, the Rymov and his successors. So uh, Krakow was peculiar because it attracted a majority of burghers 
and in particular among the patriciate and the most prominent people who were Germans. They brought with them from Western Europe some of the animosity that caused the Jewish people to move to Poland. Uh, that balance was redressed only through drastic means when the burghers of Krakow, German burghers of Krakow, supported a usurping Czech monarch, Bohemian monarch, and there was a popular uprising against the Germans if to favor Ladislas uh, uh, the elbow. Because he was a short guy. That's what Anyway, uh, and then the German patriciate was put to the test by the rebellious people of Krakow who were Polish. So if you wanted to live, all you mm. had to do was repeat Sochevica Kołomielemu. If you didn't, that means you were a traitor to the king and to Poland, yes. And as I said, that didn't target Jews. That targeted people who were, in, in fact, instrumental in bringing altercations between the Jewish community and uh, Christian burghers in Krakow. The enormous success of um, uh, private towns uh, was because this was competition. The magnates, people who owned the towns, were, uh, uh, were interested in profit, and they arranged their towns accordingly. Also, they didn't have to be fair. I mean, it is an extreme example to, to use a Moscovite defector who immediately turned anti-Jewish. Why? Because no Jew was allowed in the Moscovite state, period. Mm -hmm. All Jews who appeared in the Moscovite state were usually slaves, and if they were not tough enough, captured in the Commonwealth. If they were not tough enough, they would convert to orthodoxy, and then there was no way back. If they held out, they would be bought back by uh, uh, Poland, by the Commonwealth. Poland, Lithuania, Ruthenia. Well, the idea of private towns endured and the practice into the 20th century. Um, Professor Andrzej Novak's uh, wife's grandfather was a proud owner of Sienia Tyche, which is outside of Bialystok. And the czarist authorities would complain to him that there were not enough lamps or that Jews were radicals in that town and some other stuff. The, he no longer had a privilege or the right to maintain a police force because obviously Poland had been partitioned. But nonetheless, the czarist Russian governor of um, occupied uh, Poland, or gubernia, or given gubernia, would, would moan to him. It's, if there was anything wrong going on in Chemiatice, the authorities would come to him and say, oh, it's your town, what the heck is going on? Oh, indeed, because uh, the Tsar, unlike the communists and the Nazis, respected private property. As bad as he was, everything except for free Poland that came afterwards which was much more horrible, including, or maybe especially, for the Jews. 
Uh, once again, I'd like to thank you and open the floor to questions. Yay! And Kodak Kevy said everything I wish I had said. Um, questions? He said everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, go. You, then you, then. Whatever. There is an excellent book uh, on this subject, uh, which is a historical atlas. It was put together by the University of Toronto and the University of Seattle together, a joint venture, which shows also the history of how the Polish was spreading through the Commonwealth. Uh, very interesting one. And it shows, uh, by the way, that Warsaw was the largest uh, uh, Jewish community in Europe. By, by the end of 19th century, which is little in absolute numbers, absolute numbers, yeah. right? Yeah, 300,000 over 900,000 population. But uh, I was going to make. A, I have a question for you, actually. Uh, when uh, when we're looking at the royal towns and private towns, you know, private town was established on private property. So the owner of, of that land could make decisions whether to enlarge the city or not to enlarge it, you know, and he could allow, you know, more people or less people. Royal towns had very definite borders. Mm -hmm. So if someone wanted to, to get a piece of property, Poland was the individual property law country. Mm -hmm. Not tribal one, not, 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 uh, mm, like in Russia, everything belongs to the Tsar, right? Uh, so, uh, in order to, to, for the Jew, or for Jewish family to, to settle, for example, in Warsaw, or even in Krakow itself, you know, or, or smaller towns, you know, to, to get a piece of property was very difficult because there were owners, and not all owners would be willing to sell the property, right? So the population of, uh, of uh, populating the royal cities by, by the Jews were more difficult because the boundaries were very well defined, right? This is one thing. And of course, the inhabitants that were living in those cities, they were trying to defend from any threat they considered, mm -hmm. right? Very often it was prejudice, very often it was, you know, just simply... It was, it was all competition, they didn't yeah, want competition from the, yeah. yeah. But, uh, mm, the I think you, you, could, you could look also from this perspective, you know, that, that, that for example, Warsaw couldn't grow fast, you know, unless uh, the suburban area, boroughs, were incorporated into the city limits, right? I think this is something that's worth looking into. And uh, one another comment, you, you, uh, Jews had individual freedom in Poland, right? Yeah. They could move freely yes. from place to place, and uh, uh, the only limitation they had, they couldn't freely buy the land, because the land was... There was a restriction on that, could yeah. be only by nobility. But there was also so local variation in that restriction. And many, many actually Jews, well, the illiteracy among the Jews didn't exist at this time, you know. So very often they were very educated, very well educated, you know, in mathematics, finance, you name it. No wonder that, you know, Abramovich was uh, 
was like the treasurer of the uh, Grand Duchy of Lithuania, right? This is the man you were... Oh, sorry, I have to ask you a question because we only yes. have one more minute left. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. So you'll right. be the last person yeah. asking questions. Yes. And, uh, mm, you know, my, my question is, you know, is this, do you because they work with nobility so easily and how to grow businesses. You know. This may be the, the, was the inspiration for nobility to work very closely with uh, Jews. Yeah, that's, you know. that's definitely a factor. I mean, Jews uh, are, were one of, the labor, one of the groups in Poland that actually would, you would consider free labor, as in they, were, um, they could switch. Like the peasants, a lot of peasants, not all the peasants, but much of the peasantry in St. Ruthenia could not become, couldn't, couldn't leave their land and become free burghers or whatnot. Uh, the, the, the Jews had the right to immigrate much more easily than, say, the Ruthenian or some Polish peasants, not in the peasants we were earlier talking about. Okay, we'll do one more. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's true. <laughs> from everything you were saying. Anyway, my question would be this. Do you feel, I was actually, I kept thinking about the rule of subsidiarity as I was listening to you, making distinctions between private and royal. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that there is a, a very definite, I was looking at those victims and pogroms, and I was also later thinking about towns that were 60% Jewish mm -hmm. in 1939. Didn't turn out well because there was no. more victims than those yeah. I see where you're going, and I, I, I think I'm biased in this because I do like you know local government and things like that. But yeah, I would say that um, that that the relationship was much closer. And you know, this book talks about it, and another uh, the book on Apatu talks about how much easier it was in private cities to uh, deal, uh, you know, change rules, regulations, or. Or, 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 or deal with those type of problems. So this rule of subsidiarity, I think, it works was applied much better in private towns than royal towns. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Oh, do you want to talk about it afterwards, or, or do you want? To? Okay. Well, go ahead. Go, okay, just ask. Just ask. I mean, you're. I love. I love your necklace, by the way. Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Right, yeah, yeah. So is it fair to, you know, say that there's either a royal town or a private town? How do you deal with that? My second question is maybe a little bit bigger. And if, and you don't have to answer it all right now, I can talk to you after, but how do you define when you say there was a persecution or there was an expulsion? When you say that there, you know, Jews were kicked out of a town, um, you know, and there was a privileged, non-tolerant Judaist, do you take into account the fact that Jews 
Christians often moved into a neighboring town where they got a or they moved into privileged and non-tolerant as Christianity, which is pretty unique for really. They got those. Did yeah. they get those privileges? Ooh, show me info on that. Non-tolerant is. Can you send me that? That'd be yeah, interesting. Um, you know, what? maybe I remember reading that. Or just, um, but. Persecutions, I'm not looking, so blood, uh, the indiv- on the individual li- level, it'd be like a blood libel, because that's obviously anti-Semitic or, or whatnot. It's obviously added Jew, or riots against Jews and things like that. But if it's, you know, a Jew is murdered, and it's not really clear if it's because he's Jewish or not, I'm not taking something like that into account. And actually, sometimes with those blood libels, it seemed pretty clear that there was some type of economic motivation behind it. Yeah, there usually is. There was, it was not because they thought. When you don't know what it's about, it's about. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, you'd see the, there was a blood libel, and the, the courts are taking it seriously, and then you look at who's behind the courts, whatever, and it's the guild. And, you, and, and with, with, the, with the local, like, so the, the noble enclaves within the towns, the Udodiki and all that, um, yeah, that's actually an interesting way of, like, perhaps if there were more of those in a town, in a royal city, it was more peaceful, more, it was more violent, maybe, can, yeah, that, that'd be interesting to look at. Um, I, 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 I like that. I'm going to have to think about that more and do a little more research. Okay, thank you. Thank you.